This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan. As we come on the air this morning, we are covering two major breaking news stories. Ten people are dead following a mass shooting in Monterey Park, a city just east of Los Angeles. At least ten more are wounded and at this point, the gunman is not in custody. The shooting happened just after a Lunar New Year celebration. Here in Washington, we've learned of even more classified material uncovered at President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, following a nearly 12-hour search on Friday, facilitated by the Department of Justice, along with White House counsel and the president's personal attorney. We'll have more on that in a moment, but we want to begin with the very latest on that shooting in Monterey Park, California, and our Chris Van Cleve is on the scene. Chris? Margaret, good morning. A lot of unanswered questions face investigators this morning. The work at the scene here continues. The FBI and local police still here. The suspect has not been identified and at last report was still on the loose. The motive, the why for all of this, that remains a mystery. I got uh, three medias in here and I got approximately 10 deceased. This morning, a community's celebration of the Lunar New Year turns to tragedy. Investigators say the deadly shooting came as the event was wrapping up in Monterey Park outside Los Angeles. Authorities believe a lone gunman opened fire on a crowd, killing 10 and injuring at least 10 others, some critically. When officers arrived on scene, they observed numerous individuals, patrons of the location, pouring out of the location, uh, screaming. The uh, officers made entry to the location and located additional victims. The mass shooting took place inside a ballroom dance club a little before 10.30 Saturday night. All I can tell you is that it was a firearm that was used. Monterey Park is a community of nearly 62,000. Almost two-thirds of its population is Asian. The Lunar New Year celebration is a big attraction here. Witnesses said they initially thought the shots were fireworks. I did hear some sounds going off and I was like, fireworks? It's very surprising, shocking to hear that something like this went on in not only a small city, but my city. According to some witnesses, the shooter appeared to be firing indiscriminately. The Lunar New Year festivities here in Monterey Park attract about 100,000 people a day. It's a two-day event. All of the plans for today have been canceled. We understand police are at a second location a few miles from here in a neighboring city. The sheriff's department says it may be related to the shooting here. We're still waiting for details on that, Margaret. Chris Van Cleve, thank you. And we will come back to you later in the show if there is any new development. But right now we go to our chief national affairs and justice correspondent, Jeff Pegues. Jeff, we know both the president and vice president have been briefed on this. Uh, what are you hearing from your sources about this investigation? Well, it's ongoing in terms of tracking down who this person is. The question is, you know, what kind of weapon was involved here? Is it a hate crime? Some of the initial questions that law enforcement, whether it's local and federal, are asking right now. 
So why are federal investigators involved in it at this point, and how do they determine things like motive? Well, here's where I think law enforcement has an advantage. In this phase of an investigation, when you have a suspect still out there, having the help of the FBI, the ATF, can the ATF, for one, can trace the weapon, the origin of the weapon, also help with the crime scene, as can the FBI. But of course, the FBI can also talk to witnesses who are anywhere across the country. At this point, all we're hearing is that it was a firearm. Um, why is that significant in terms of the type of weapon? Well, it looks like, based on the amount of wounded and dead, that this was a high-powered sort of weapon, whether it was semi-automatic or automatic. It could unleash several rounds uh, a minute. And so uh, investigators are going to look at that as they try to process the scene as it unfolded moment to moment. How, I mean, when you hear that the shooter is still potentially on the loose here, what happens in a scenario like that? You know, we don't see in terms of active shooter situations like this and mass shooting situations like this, you don't see uh, a lot of suspects who do the act and then take off. In many cases, they will take their own life. And so uh, this is an interesting case in, in that way, that investigators are still searching for the suspect. They haven't not at this time released a, uh, a description of the suspect or what kind of vehicle this person could or, or may be riding in. And so it, there's still a lot of questions about the investigation going forward in terms of tracking that suspect down, which is so yeah. rare in situations like this. Jeff Begays, uh, I'll let you get back to making calls. Thank you. Now to the other big breaking news story we're covering today. Last night, we learned that on Friday, the FBI executed what the White House is calling a comprehensive search of President Biden's Wilmington, Delaware home and took possession of six more items with classification markings. The search, which Mr. Biden's attorneys say was conducted with their full cooperation, began at approximately 9.45 a.m. and wrapped up around 10.30 p.m. President Biden's personal attorney, Bob Bauer, said in a statement that the Department of Justice had, quote, full access to all the materials in the Wilmington home and that the search included personally handwritten notes, files, papers, binders, memorabilia, to-do lists, schedules and reminders going back decades. Bauer also said that some of the items taken were both from Mr. Biden's tenure as vice president and from his years in the Senate. CBS News does not know the level of classification for the six new items that were retrieved Friday, but at this point, we do know that the number of known classified documents that have been recovered since November 2nd is between 25 and 30. The Department of Justice is considering searches of other locations tied to the president. The one Friday was overseen by U.S. Attorney John Lausch. Special Counsel Robert Hurd does not take over the case until the end of the month. Mr. Biden dodged questions about the document investigation most of last week, but on Thursday reiterated that he was fully cooperating with the investigation and hoped it would soon be concluded. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. Thank you. We go now to Ohio Congressman Mike Turner. He is expected to head up the House Intelligence Committee. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Thank you for having me. So uh, we have this development in regard to the further materials that were found at uh, President Biden's Delaware home. What is your reaction and what does it signify to you that no one realized uh, that this classified material was missing, some of it dating back to his Senate years? Yeah, this is really incredible. And as you know, congratulations to you. We would not know anything about this if it hadn't been that CBS had broken this story. Uh, the White House nor the Department of Justice had shared any of the information with the public. And this really is one matter. We wouldn't have this issue if it hadn't been for Biden's attorney general uh, making the decision to raid former President Trump's house looking for, for classified documents uh, that were being held there. Um, what's amazing about all this is it takes us to the question of why were these documents here? Well, now that we learn that some of these go back to his Senate time, you know, clearly he's, he's become a serial classified document hoarder. 
Why did he have these? Who did he show them to? I mean, the only reason you can think of as to why anyone would take classified documents out of a classified space at home mm -hmm. is, to, is to show them to somebody. Who did he show them to? This is going to be crucial, I think, to the special counsel's investigation, is why did the president have these documents? Who did he show them to him? And is it connected uh, to the Biden family businesses? Well, you know the differences, of course, too. I want to talk about the Biden situation, but just to clarify, when you reference President Trump, there were 300 classified documents, there was a warrant, there was refusal to comply in terms of handing things over, and the White House and the president's lawyer are pointing out that in the case of Biden, he granted permission, and this was consensual for the DOJ to come in and search. Does the fact that the Justice well, Department well, conducted the search signify anything more to you? And do you have any insight into the sensitivity of the documents? Sure, absolutely. I think this looks more like a cover-up than an investigation. Do you have any facts to back up your, your allegations that he was hoarding things in terms of intention to take classified material versus it's been characterized that it was somehow accidental? Do you have any insight into what these materials were? Well, they didn't fly to his home without him. They went on a train with him from the, the, his Senate offices and then in boxes that he was in, in charge of. The chain of custody here is going to be important because we know that these were in Joe Biden's hands and Joe Biden's control. And then it ended up behind his Corvette in his garage and in his office that he did not control and also throughout his house. And mm -hmm. so the, the, the special counsel is going to have to deal with the issue of what was the chain of custody? Who had these? Why did he take them to begin with? When did he get them? Yeah. When was he handed these documents? And what did he do with them? And this is a real critical question to all this. Why did he have these documents to begin with? And that is yeah. why the special counsel's work is going to be really important, because I can think of no reason why the president should have taken home as, as a senator or as vice president any classified documents um, that that clearly yes. have no protection. They're available and open to anybody. You have also, before this development, asked for a briefing from the director of national intelligence. You said a deadline of Thursday. Do you have any further reason to believe they will meet that deadline, that you will get any insight into these materials? Um, I, we'll have to see. But I, what's critical they here, and this responded. is very important, this is what's very important to all of this, Margaret, and that is the FBI and the National Archivists were working completely independent of the intelligence community or the Department of Defense. They claim this was yeah. all an issue of national security, but they did not speak to anyone who's involved in national security. So no response yet from the intelligence community? I have not received a okay. response. No. Okay. I also want to ask you uh, what leadership looks like with Republicans in charge. You were also on House <laughs> Oversight. Um, there, uh, of the 26 Republican members on the committee, 19 of them denied the results of the 2020 election. Uh, your colleagues now include Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs, Lauren Boebert, Scott Perry. They all played critical roles in, in the former president's attempts to overturn the 2020 election results. Do you have any concerns about working with these lawmakers? I mean, you're very much a centrist. Well, you know, even on the Democrat side, there's been a number of people who objected to President Bush's re-election and voted against certifying his election. I'm asking there's about you, your party, and sides. your colleagues. There's a long history of both sides uh, who, having raised issues, including, you'll recall, um, you know, the, the Al Gore taking President You're Bush's election. You're not an election, election denier the the by Supreme CBS Court. standards, just to be clear. I, I am. I am not. And I work with both sides of the aisle. And there are election deniers on both sides of the aisle. You are comfortable with all those individuals I just rattled off and the fact that the majority of the Republicans on this committee denied election results? Is that what you're saying? What I'm comfortable with is the electorate are, are very smart. And these people have been sent to Congress to represent their districts and to be part of the congressional debate yes. to lead us to what's going to be bipartisan, bicameral uh, resolutions. We have a split government right now. Republicans own control of the House. The Senate is controlled by the Democrats. You have a Democrat president. We're going to have a lot of debate and discussions. And I think this is going to be a very fruitful period uh, for, for Congress and for our country because it's going to have to be bipartisan, bicameral. And I believe that the president, in opening negotiations with the Republicans, is beginning to start that process. What is actually possible in this bipartisan, bicameral situation? What, what can you actually get well, legislation? I, I mean, depending upon on. what the depending on what the president's willing to do, I think it's unlimited. Right. We have really tough issues right now. We have out of control inflation. We have an open border and, and record 
people crossing our, our border. What about gun control? Uh, we have we have the issue of Russia and and certainly in Ukraine and certainly China. I think we're going to have a number of issues that we're going to have to deal with. All right, Congressman Turner, we have to leave it there today. Thank you, Margaret. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. For some political analysis, we're joined now by Chief Election and Campaign Correspondent Robert Costa and Ed O'Keefe. Ed, let me start with you because it was last night, probably around, what, seven or so, yeah. when all of us got the email from the president's attorney and then a statement from the White House about this latest discovery of documents. This drip, drip, drip just continues. It does, and this is by design now. Uh, the White House uh, Counsel's Office, his personal attorney, making very clear that they withheld this information until after the uh, search was conducted at his home in Delaware. Um, and this is how we're going to be learning about things, essentially. Once steps are taken by the Justice Department, in this case, an FBI search of a sitting president's home, a pretty extraordinary development in this case, mm -hmm. uh, and something we've not seen before, but a step that they made very clear they took voluntarily. They were there for this, attorneys were, uh, and they took away six more items marked classified. For now, a total of about 25 to 30 classified documents found in uh, at his former office here in Washington and then in his home in Delaware. And it raises questions about, you know, what was that material? Uh, what more could be found? Where else might they search? Right. And, and what the classification level is. I mean, the, the reporting on this is is continuing, but the politics, Bob, as you know, are, are, were laid bare there with uh, Congressman Turner talking about uh, outrage, frankly, um, that in so many different locations, these materials could have been found. And, and it changes the calculus for Republicans. Um, and it, it gives them an advantage, frankly, politically, to make this argument. The Republicans remain confrontational with this White House. They see divided government as an opportunity, especially in the House, where they have the majority to continue this investigation, even as the Justice Department continues its own investigation. You have someone like the Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan now mounting his own investigation of the FBI and the Justice Department and the intelligence agencies. This also comes politically at a moment of transition for the Biden White House. Ron Klain, the chief of staff, mm -hmm. has signaled that he will be departing his position in the coming months. He has been a key link to progressives, has helped Biden work on signature legislation like the American Rescue Plan. And he's lasted quite a long time for a chief of staff, two years. Well, I'm glad you bring that up, because the other thing that the departure of the chief of staff raises questions about is this looming policy and political conversation about the debt ceiling. Um, who runs that point on that? Obviously, the Treasury Secretary has a huge role, but in terms of talking to the Hill and the negotiations, who's doing that if the chief of staff is leading? What I'm told from people inside the West Wing is that President Biden himself has a relationship with Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, of course, with Chuck Schumer, the Senate Democratic leader. They are in some ways going to try to cut out Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the House Republicans. There's not an appetite among Democrats to put spending cuts on the table at all. They would like to see a clean debt limit extension. And Jim Clyburn, one of the top Democrats in the House, recently told me he could see a scenario where centrist House Republicans band together with House Democrats 
for a clean debt limit extension. And that outreach is underway. We've heard from the White House saying that they are trying to reach out to these new members. There's going to be a meeting this week with newly elected members invited to the White House to come and meet the president, say hello. And, and you better believe that one of the ways they will try to work this is, are there enough Republicans out there, maybe in districts that the president won, or that just know they're going to face a tough re-election, who can be at least talked to about mm -hmm. the risks and the potential to work together on this but issue? It, it, clarify that. When you say cut out the Speaker of the House, are you saying it's 212 Democrats plus how, however many, 15 or more they, Republicans they can pull over rather than Republicans moving to lift the debt ceiling? What I'm hearing is that many more moderate centrist House Republicans, those who are traditional Republicans, are looking at this and they don't want to get in front of McCarthy. They know he has to meet with Biden in the coming weeks and tell the president he wants this and that in terms of a deal. But if a deal falls apart, as Ed said, they're starting to have back channel conversations of could a coalition of 10 to 15 House Republicans get together with 200 plus House Democrats to get a clean extension through the House. Not the prettiest way to do it, but certainly worth considering and something they have to talk about. Right. Well, when you talk about Bob, um, Leader uh, McConnell and President Biden, they have history going really back do. to the last time so right. we went to the brink with the debt ceiling in, in 2011. But the politics are even more complicated than they were back then. So how do they, you know, carry out this strategy? I feel like you're laying out on ESPN the different potential strategies on the, on the playing field here. Privately, I'm told President Biden and Senator McConnell have chuckled behind the scenes with longtime friends about how at this stage in divided government, it's these two men who have long been friends who are being counted upon to perhaps cut a deal. I remember when I first started covering Congress a decade ago, I would remember Vice President Biden was the one yeah. who came to the Capitol to meet with Senator McConnell to cut a deal on that so-called fiscal cliff way back then. So they have that history and they were re recently in uh, Kentucky together showing at least not political solidarity, but in terms of a personal relationship, there's a real rapport. But politically, this still is something that we're going to be uh, it, it can be very complicated. I mean, you can't completely cut the House out of the situation. Right? You can't. You can't. But look, this is also helpful for the White House. It's a helpful foil, in essence, because one of the things they want to keep doing, other than talking about that potential fight, other than talking about this search of his home over the week mm -hmm. on Friday, is about the economy. And so you can go out there as president, as a cabinet secretary, as the vice president, and say, look, the economy's on the rebound. We seem to have held off inflation for the most part. Things are in decent shape. It's going to get much worse if Republicans allow this brinksmanship to continue, and even worse so if they go after things like carving into Social Security and Medicare as a way to pay for things. Oh, those, are, those are the third rail, but then you add in the potential of cutting defense spending, and that also becomes problematic. Right. But it does seem like Republicans are shifting the conversation in some way towards the need to have a conversation about uh, fiscal spending. That is exactly right. And keep an eye on Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Mm -hmm. He is telling his colleagues he is open to having a discussion about spending cuts. So as many top Democrats say, hey, mm -hmm. we want a clean extension, they now have Senator Manchin and a few others saying maybe we should negotiate a little bit. So there's a tension point in that area. We're going to see if there are other Senate Democrats also willing. And hopefully we'll talk to one of them ahead on the show. Thanks to both of you. Um, we do have Virginia Senator Tim Kaine standing by, but we have some technical issues. So stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. 
Today marks what would have been the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And even though it is no longer the law of the land, both pro and anti-abortion rights supporters are marching on Washington and other cities this weekend. We took a look back through our archives and found a challenge to Roe versus Wade from 1989 that also prompted marches on Washington. Welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Leslie Stahl. 16 years ago, the Supreme Court said a woman has a right to a legal abortion. The court, far more conservative today, is about to review that decision. We're hopeful that we'll get to a point in our nation's history where we restore protection to unborn children. This, this right is in danger, and it is in serious danger now. So worried are the pro-choice forces, they're hoping to rally more than a quarter million people to march in Washington today. I think Washington is literally going to be shut down. Abortion, it's become a litmus test for public figures. Let's suppose that I, I'm 12, and I was sexually molested by my father, and I became, I was sexually molested by my father, and I became pregnant. Would you want me to carry that baby to term and have that baby? It's a difficult question, and one that does not have an easy answer, but my answer would be yes. Anti-abortion groups have turned to civil disobedience. Some 10,000 activists have been arrested. We are seeing clinics closed down for full days. Babies' lives are being saved. There are still 1.6 million abortions a year in the U.S. Yet while polls show over 75% support abortions for rape or incest, majorities now believe they should be illegal if sought for financial or emotional reasons. The issue is proving to be a tricky one for some Republican 2024 hopefuls after Democrats had a better than expected showing in the 2022 midterms. One big reason was the party is more supportive of abortion rights. We'll be right back. We're back with Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. I know you have dealt with a number of mass shootings as governor and senator in the state of Virginia. I wonder your thoughts on Monterey Park this morning. Margaret, it's, a, it's just like scar tissue that keeps getting reopened. Every time these things happen, we're reminded in Virginia of the shooting at Virginia Tech in April of 2007. My heart goes out to this community. I'm worried that the perpetrator's still at large. So let's first make sure that the law enforcement has the support to catch him. And then we need to support those survivors and all who've been affected. All right, Senator, we have to take a quick break. And I want to talk to you more on the other side of it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Face the Nation, and we continue our conversation with Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. Um, Senator, yesterday for the fifth time, we learned about this other tranche of classified information being kept at the president's um, personal uh, residence. How does a senator accidentally take classified material home? Um, Margaret, I, I don't really know the answer to that question um, because I, I review classified material as a senator on the Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees. But when I do it, it's always in a classified facility where I don't have access to uh, the materials other than to sit there and read them. So that's why there needs to be this independent investigation and independent prosecutor. How many documents are we talking about? Dozens, a handful or hundreds? Um, how serious are they? Um, why were they taken? Did anyone have access to them? And then is the president being cooperative? And I think by all accounts, it suggests that, yes, of course, he's being cooperative, as, as anyone should be. Uh, but these are the reasons why this independent prosecutor and an investigation is necessary. You're one of the few Senate Democrats who've said, you know, that you have concern uh, about this issue. Um, I wonder how concerned you are. And politically, doesn't this damage the White House and the president in terms of trust and credibility? Well, again, the, the, those questions do depend on the answer to the uh, mm -hmm. that we'll get in this investigation. I mean, Margaret, you you know this. Government has a tendency to overclassify. If they are looking at a document and they have to analyze to decide whether to classify, sometimes they just mark it classified. I'll read it in the skip and say, Margaret was reporting on that a month ago, or the Washington Post has been telling me this for the last six months. So you do have to see what's the scope, how serious, did anyone have access? And those questions have to be answered before you know we decide 
is this how significant an issue is this? Right, uh, and that may take some time. Um, I, I want to ask you about some of the the business that. Congress will have to get to uh, soon. Um, as you know, the White House wants a clean lift to the debt limit with no strings attached. Um, Senator Manchin said it's a mistake for the White House to refuse to negotiate with Republicans. Do you think that position is changing? I is it a mistake? Well, first, we should we should have a clean lift of the debt ceiling because the 14th Amendment to the Constitution says nobody should question the creditworthiness of the United States. This is about whether the U.S. pays our credit card or not. And I don't think anyone should flirt with not paying the, the U.S.'s credit card, which is what Republicans are doing. So the White House position is correct. We should raise the debt ceiling. But if Republicans are saying they won't do it and they're threatening our creditworthiness because they want cuts, let them put cuts on the table. Is it the cutting Social Security and Medicare that Rick Scott wanted to do? Is it cutting aid to Ukraine in the middle of a war between a, a democracy and an illegally mm -hmm. invading dictator? Let them put on the table what they want to cut so that the American public can see uh, what their priorities are. Uh, Speaker McCarthy has said the president has uh, invited him to speak, have a conversation and yes. to discuss a responsible lift to the debt ceiling. So what does that mean? How does this politically get dressed up so we avoid the cliff? Well, um, at first, that's a good thing. I'm, I'm very, very happy that the president and uh, Speaker McCarthy are talking. That's really positive. Um, how do we fix this? Um, Jeff Merkley and I have a bill that's based upon an earlier fix that uh, Senator McConnell led during the Obama administration when there was a similar uh, brinksmanship around the debt ceiling. And Senator McConnell said, look, we will allow the president to raise it subject to a congressional disapproval. And that was done. And we think that should be the norm anyway. So we have a bill called the Protect Our Credit Act that would basically say the president has got to cover the debts of the United States. Um, and if that includes raising the debt ceiling, the president can do mm -hmm. that. But if Congress disapproves, then you can have an expedited up yeah. or down vote in Congress. And I think that's the right solution to this. Uh, before I let you go, you're on armed services. How concerned are you that Secretary of Defense Austin left Germany with no agreement among Western allies to provide tanks to Ukraine? Margaret, there are there are some differences about exactly what and what's the timing in terms of providing equipment. But we have assembled a global coalition to support Ukraine. The unity has been very strong and the support bipartisan and bicameral in Congress has been very strong. And I think that will continue. Senator Kane, thank you for your time today. Absolutely. And, so, Thanks, and some of the nation's mayors are in town. They're the first line of defense in every city, as you all know. So stay with us. We'll be right back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? <laughs> Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're back now with four of our nation's mayors. Francis Suarez is the mayor of Miami and the head of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Latoya Cantrell is the mayor of New Orleans. Plus, we have Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens with us, along with John Giles, the mayor of Mesa, Arizona. Good morning to all of you, and thank you so much for being here Good in person. Um, I, I want to talk about just what is developing um, in terms of the shooting in California. Nationwide, we are seeing this spike in violent crime. We're seeing reports of an uptick in anti-Semitism and hate crimes. All of you are from states where there are fairly permissive gun laws. And I wonder, uh, Mayor Suarez, how you put those pieces together. 
What is driving this? Yeah, it's it's uh, so many different uh, factors that are driving this. But, you know, one of the things that we focused a lot on in this uh, mayoral conference that we just ended was mental health. Uh, mental health is a huge component of what's driving a lot of these. Uh, when you look at the root cause and you go back and you uh, sort of peel back the layers of the onion, uh, mayors are very concerned about it. Um, we obviously had a panel, obviously, on, uh, on, on urban crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly a lot of these mayors uh, have talked about, uh, you know, gun control in their cities. Um, in our city, you know, we, we have we were very blessed. We had a great year. Uh, our homicide level went down. We've been able, and, and I knock on proverbial wood, that we haven't had any of these mass shootings that we've seen across the country, which seem to be, uh, you know, es- escalating in terms of frequency and in terms of, um, uh, you know, the amount of times that we're seeing them. It's almost every day. It seems like we're having one. Um, so uh, it, it's been it's been tough. It's something that mayors are grappling with across the country, and we're focusing it on in a very comprehensive way. You specifically this week told your fellow mayors that uh, some of this is driven by no cash bail policies. Why do you say that? Are repeat offenders a problem? Yeah, well, what, what I'm focusing on is the no cash bail is creating lawlessness in a lot of our cities. What's happening is, for example, people get out uh, right away. They're not even, uh, you know, they don't even have to post bail. Uh, so they're able to get out uh, right away. And so we're seeing someone go into like a CVS, for example, um, and, and take thousands of dollars worth of merchandise, which is causing a CVS to close, which hurts, uh, the, you know, the rest of the city. But that, that's not particularly related to, to the gun violence issue. It's related more to petty crime, uh, which is creating lawlessness in some of our cities. But what we're do, we are seeing uh, in the city of Miami is, you know, we are upfunding our police. You know, a lot of cities yeah. got into the defunding police movement, and we're seeing that as a bipartisan issue. Mm-hmm. I said it at the White House, uh, you know, just uh, a couple days ago, and the president echoed what I said about upfunding police and not defunding police. So I think that yeah. is a bigger issue as we uh, struggle with how we solve these issues in on our cities. And President Biden put in, what, $4 billion in grants that's available for local law enforcement use in cities around the country. Yeah, you know, as you talked about this issue that's happening right now in California, yet another mass shooting in our country. It continues to happen uh, too frequently. And so uh, it's just too many guns in America. It's too many guns in the hands on our streets. And guns plus anger equals bad outcomes, equals mm-hmm. violence. And so we have to bring back uh, laws that are sensible, uh, common sense gun laws to be able to reduce the amount of access that people have to guns. And so you see another mass shooting and uh, lives are lost, and my heart goes out to the people of California experiencing that. And so as Mayor Suarez mentioned, we're talking mm-hmm. about mental health and how to make sure that we have uh, anti-violence in our communities. We're utilizing a cure violence, uh, you know, to bring down the retaliation and make sure we have uh, healing in our communities to try to use policing and non-policing tactics to bring down violence. Midnight basketball, uh, things that are, you know, summer youth employment program to help, help our youth, but mental health and just getting people people uh, the quality care that they need so they make wise decisions, because mm-hmm. most of the violence that we're seeing in our communities is escalating disputes. People that are unable to resolve a conflict that's just escalated too much, and people aren't fighting or arguing anymore. They're taking their uh, hands to their pockets and pulling out a gun, and it gets too intense and someone kills someone. And that's the violence we're seeing in America. So we have to take a whole-of-government approach to be able to bring down this violence, things that we can do uh, to help our youth, to help our communities. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's some of the stuff that we're doing in Atlanta. Mayor Jones, you actually, I was surprised when I saw that Mesa has such a big population. I think you've, you've, you're the biggest city at the table. Yeah. Um, and it looked at, I looked at your police site, it says that you are one of America's safest large cities. Right. How do you qualify that and, and how are you doing that if that is a, is a fact? Well, a lot of the things that, that these fellows had just mentioned, we are, are doubling down on our investment in our police department and we are shifting the paradigm. A few years ago, we changed the name of our fire department. It's no longer the Mesa Fire Department. It's now Mesa Fire and Medical to better reflect what we do. We need to do the same when it comes to policing. It needs to be the police and mental health department. Last year, we, we uh, diverted over 3,000 911 calls away from a police response to a mental health response. So again, it, the, the, the importance of mental health is, is ubiquitous in all that we do. And it was discussed at the, uh, at the conference. It's, it has everything to do with, with how we address homelessness. It has everything with how we do, how we address uh, policing in our community. Mayor Cantrell, I, I wanna get you on that too, because uh, President Biden said it's not about defunding the police, it's about restraining the police. I wonder if you agree with that. I know you have had a problem in New Orleans with not having enough police officers, less sure. than a thousand for 300,000 people. Sure, and the thing is, is that um, it's about retention and it is also about recruitment. 
uh, because of this second tranche of the American Rescue Plan dollars coming our way with direct allocation. Oh, it has really been a lifeline uh, where we're putting 80 million in public safety across the board. One of the biggest in terms of a retention and incentive package to retain. Uh, we see it slowing down, meaning attrition is declining. Our officers are staying. And so we just have to continue to give the tools and resources that our officers need to respond. Also, in terms of the capacity issue you mentioned, you know, I've had to put um, all commissioned officers that were in special ops over 75 back on the street because my officers were saying, hey, we need help out here. So I have to protect my officers so they can protect my city. And so we're seeing a real results in regards to our, our redeployment strategy on the ground. So it, you, New Orleans has the highest per capita murder rate of any major city. Why? Why is because one, dealing with COVID-19, violence, everyone has guns. Uh, the ability or the lack of the ability to resolve a conflict uh, without reaching and pulling a gun. Also, as it relates to accountability, you know, um, low-lining offenses, you know, when they don't get bail or they're not um, restrained, then we're just seeing how these crimes escalate. Mm -hmm. People need to be held accountable across the board. And we're seeing uh, uh, results, I would say. We're moving in the right direction. But I tell you, we definitely need to hold people accountable. Um, you can't fight crime just focusing on police. Mm -hmm. It's about a system, a criminal justice system. It's about the DA, uh, your judges, and it's about building in accountability. Everyone needs to be held accountable. And that's how we're focusing on it. Holistic approach in the city of New Orleans. Definitely uh, seeing a decline, moving in the right direction. This issue of crime in your city is causing a lot of political problems, and you are the target of a recall drive that's underway uh, right now. Uh, a number of allegations against you as well uh, in, in regard to financial improprieties. How much of the responsibility with the crime issue do, do you personally take? Well, first of all, it is the New Orleans Police Department that is absolutely under my authority. And with that, making sure that not only I'm listening to my officers, but getting them the resources that they need to fight crime. And that is exactly what we're seeing on the ground, the incentive packages, retaining officers, as well as recruitment. Mm -hmm. And that's the focus. And you believe you'll survive this recall effort? Well, based on what I see mm -hmm. is that the residents of my city uh, definitely appreciate continuity in leadership. And so with that, uh, that speaks to keeping progress moving and alive under my leadership. Second elected twice in the city, 61 percent the first time, 65 percent the second time. Continuity and leadership is what I'm seeing by my people. I, I want to get to all of you on a number of issues, but I, I know something very uh, intense has just happened in Atlanta. Mayor Dickens, I watched a press conference you held last night following the death of a Georgia-based activist. It turned into a riot. This stems, as I understand it, from the shooting death of an activist. Um, and the body camera from the policeman who's believed to shoot this uh, individual doesn't exist. Um, what can you tell us in terms of who is behind the violence that happened yesterday? Yeah, uh, earlier this week, an individual that was protesting in the woods, uh, a number of folks are in the woods trying to protest against the development of a public safety training center, which is for police and firefighters, a new state-of-the-art training center that's going to allow us to do 21st century policing, allow us to have an emergency vehicle obstacle course, and these things that police and fire will be able to work together to be able to uh, bring about you know, safety in our community. And so we're building it, but some folks don't want to see anything built that supports police. So mm -hmm. they call it Cop City. And these individuals are in the woods protesting it. And unfortunately, they uh, were engaged by uh, Georgia State Patrol, asked them to be able to move out of the, the woods. An individual shot at the Georgia State Patrol and the Georgia State Patrol officer shot back. And unfortunately, uh, that individual was killed and the, and the patrol officer, the state patrol officer was shot in the abdomen. And so now uh, they had a, a, a protest last night uh, and it was peaceful. 
But there were some individuals within that crowd that meant violence. They had explosives. They burned down a police car. They broke windows at businesses. And so our police department, along with our state and federal partners, took swift action within two blocks and brought that situation under control. And the violence stopped. And those six individuals were arrested. And it should be noted that mm-hmm. these individuals were not Atlanta or Georgia residents. Most of them traveled into our city to wreak havoc. And so we love uh, to support people when they're doing right. Peaceful protest is a part of the American uh, our freedoms. But mm-hmm. when you are violent, we will make sure that you get uh, held I want, accountable. I want to pick you up on, on that point. When you say people from out of town, they're carrying explosives. Um, is this an organized uh, movement here. Your local paper says this is having national reach with reaction from groups ranging from, quote, environmental activists, radical anarchists and black revolutionaries. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Georgia congresswoman, and I'm sure you know her, blamed Black Lives Matter and Antifa and that she blamed Democrats. On the facts, yes. seven to 13 people have been charged with domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. Is this terrorism? Is this crime? What is this? Who's behind it? Yeah, I I won't go as far as whatever uh, that representative said. But what I will say is that it is a crime. uh, And that's why they've been charged with the crime. And these crimes, domestic terrorism and the the crimes range from violence to domestic terrorism to assault and battery and some other things. Um, But, yes, it is violent when someone turns to burn down a police car or break out windows or have explosives on them. I don't get into the names. I don't know all the organizations. I'll let y'all decide who did it. I just know they're arrested. And if they come into Atlanta again to wreak havoc, they will be arrested again. But do you believe your city is being targeted by organized groups? In that regard, yes. Um, those individuals that are uh, protesting against Cop City, as they mm-hmm. call it, it's really a public safety training center. Uh, they don't want to see uh, the very things that they ask for, more police training. We can't train uh, imaginary. We have to do it in a facility that allows for police, firefighters, and the community to train together. And so this is bringing about the change that we wanted to see in 2020. And now while we're doing it, these individuals don't want to see any resources go towards that uh, training. And so we're going to develop this training center and those individuals will have to come to a halt. Uh, Mayor Giles, um, you are on the front line of the migration surge. And I think it's so interesting that you're characterizing your city as very safe. Mm-hmm. You know, these issues of migration surges being uncontrolled and crime are often conflated. Mm-hmm. How are you doing that um, in terms of uh, not having this overwhelm your local officials and law enforcement? Well, I wish I could say it's not overwhelming us. Uh, it is, and it has been for decades. And uh, one of the uh, things I've enjoyed about this conference over the last few days is we, you're starting to see more bipartisan frustration. You're seeing the mayor of New York City and Chicago and, uh, and, Atlanta, and uh, Denver are all top of their agendas now is talking about the problems that are being created in their communities as a result of the migration surge. I in no way uh, support or or encourage the the practice of some of our border state governors in sending uh, migrants to these large northeastern cities, but I do have to admit that it has elevated this issue to a place that it has not been previously. Border states have been um, complaining for decades about uh, the need to address immigration reform, uh, the need to uh, dedicate additional uh, resources to the border, uh, and uh, we're doing the best we can. But in, in our city, the, uh, the, the church groups, the nonprofits that are being put upon by the federal government to come in and, and, and uh, mm-hmm. take up the slack, uh, we are, are past our resources. So hopefully, this newfound uh, bipartisan frustration and, and joining of northeastern cities to this issue will help elevate it. And you have the Super Bowl coming out to Arizona soon. I know I read that you plan to take the Homeland Security Secretary around your city. Absolutely. Uh, Mayor uh, Gallego and I met with the Secretary Mayorkas just a few days ago, uh, extended that invitation. We have very limited resources as far as welcoming centers and, and facilities to process these migrants as they proceed in their, in their mm-hmm. journeys on sometimes to, to the, the northeastern cities. Uh, we need the Band-Aids to keep coming from, from the yeah. federal government in terms of facilities. But we also need to address the underlying issue of uh, immigration reform. Mayor Soares, I need to get to you on this as well, um, because South Florida has seen this influx by boat, Cubans in particular, Haitians. Uh, Customs and Border Protection reported a 400 percent increase in the month of October alone. 
Are these new, tighter regulations from the Biden administration making any difference? Uh, it's hard to say. They, they were just imposed. But uh, certainly, uh, I think the failure of having uh, an immigration solution, uh, as Mayor Giles said, uh, is uh, creating uh, sort of Miami and Florida becoming a border state and border uh, city. Uh, as you said, we had uh, the single largest increase in public school enrollment year over year uh, this year. And so that, just to put that in context, about 14,000 new children. Uh, if, if a big school is 2,000 children, that's seven new schools that we have to create in the system. Um, it obviously, as you said, puts a homeless uh, strain on the homeless uh, system uh, in trying to, to take care of the least, the last, and the lost in our cities. Uh, it puts a strain on our public hospital system. We have one of the largest pu public hospitals in the country that provides hundreds of millions of dollars of indigent care. It puts a tremendous amount of strain on that system. So uh, I, I think Cities across America, as, as Mayor Giles said, are coming together in a bipartisan fashion, and we're asking for a long-term solution. This problem has to be fixed. There has to be an articulated strategy. Um, a lot of the immigration is coming from this hemisphere, and it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, either party really uh, has focused on solving the problem as opposed to, you know, demonizing the other side for their position. And I think that's what, what mayors do is we focus on solving problems, not blaming somebody else for it. All right. And you delivered that message here in Washington this week. Mayors, thank you very much for coming to the table. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Ohio Republican Congressman Mike Turner, Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, New Orleans Mayor Latoya Cantrell, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, and Mesa, Arizona Mayor John Giles. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.